equals spin The propaganda's win Stress feeding on my attention My countrymen, they love their fiction Words are now This made with good intentions Kia ora, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Um, I'm really excited about the, the session that we've got tonight. Um, my name's Chris. I'm a volunteer with Aotearoa Corvette Action. Um, I'll be hosting tonight's uh, panel, but I'll be handing over very quickly to our three guests because um, I'm as keen as you are to hear from them. Um, a brief introduction to us. We're people from all walks of life um, who believe that it's our responsibility to work together in ensuring a healthy and safe community for everyone. Um, just before we jump into the webinar, I just wanted to flag that um, this is a, like we want to make this a safe space for learning. And the reason I say this is, as we all know, unfortunately, COVID has become quite politicized, quite a charged topic. We're offering this information tonight, like without any judgment, without um, wanting to say anything about the way people have been behaving um, or anything like that. It's really here in the spirit of sharing information and enabling people to make informed choices about their health and the health of their family. Um, some of this information might be new to you, uh, might be even be surprising. Um, so if you do find yourself uh, during the webinar, go, wow, I had, you know, I had no idea that COVID was this serious, or I had no idea that I should be taking, you know, more steps to protect myself or my family. Um, I would just say, go check out our previous webinar. Um, it's a great place to go if you're looking for things to do. If you, you know, if you have that feeling of, gosh, I need to do something now. Um, we had two great uh, speakers talking about uh, interventions in their schools. Um, so a great place to go if you're, if you're feeling like um, you need to do something. So tonight we have three speakers, Dr. Amanda Kowalsvig, Dr. Elspeth Frascatore and Connor Brown. Well, we've got 15 minutes for each of them to talk. After that, we've got 15 minutes for questions and answers. And then we've got 10 minutes at the moment where we'll just be sharing and reiterating some tips we've um, shared at our previous webinars about finding like-minded people in your community and taking action and the most effective ways you can, you can create change in your community. So um, that brings us to our first speaker, which I'm very excited to introduce. Dr. Amanda Kowalsvig has a dual background in clinical pediatrics and epidemiology and is a research associate professor in the Department of Public Health at the University of Otago, Wellington. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, Dr. Kowalsvig. Kia ora and hello to everybody. It's lovely to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, I think we've got a lot to get through, so I'm going to start uh, sharing my screen. I'm going to talk about protecting the pandemic generation. And this is the generation of people who are children now, and they have many decades of life ahead of them. What do we need to be thinking about? I'm talking about protecting the pandemic generation. The structure of this talk, um, I'm going to talk about what do we know, and then given what we know, what should we do? When we've got a new pathogen in town and new disease in town, there are four key principles that we need to think about in terms of assessing the risk. And the first one is perhaps the most important. It's about being proactive, not reactive in assessing risk. We know that all serious infections, whether they're pandemic, epidemic, 
or endemic have the potential to cause longer-term harms. They all do this. So this should be our base assumption when we've got a, a new pandemic. We know that there are going to be longer-term impacts. The real question is, what are they? How common are they going to be? What should we do about it? And so that is a very strong argument for a precautionary approach. We know that pandemics cast long shadows. We've had now enough time to observe the after effects of the 1918 influenza pandemic to know that the impacts for some survivors were lifelong. Our first coronavirus pandemic of the 21st century was 2003. We've now had two decades to observe that one. Um, the pandemic is over, but the long-term impacts on survivors are still going on today. So COVID-19 is really a baby pandemic. We're only three years into it. We shouldn't make any assumptions um, until we know a little bit more, until more time has gone by and um, that uh, the effects are going to disappear. The second point I'd like to emphasize is listen to the lived experience of children and their families. And um, as someone who used to be in clinical pediatrics, that is rule one, two, and three of pediatrics. Always listen. Parents know when things aren't right with their children, and children know when things aren't right with themselves. They may not be able to articulate it, but they can show it, and we need to pay attention to that. Other speakers are speaking, uh, Elspeth after me is going to speak about long COVID and I, I think there have been other sessions about this. So this is a topic that's um, very important. I'm, I'm not going to dwell on it in this talk, just to say that um, we do understand that there are high impacts on some children and their families. And um, the, the biggest experts at the moment are children and their families. The third point, is when a virus shows you what it can do, believe it. And what I mean by that is we now have the tools to assess impact of a virus um, without having to wait to, to observe them. So by looking at tissue and cell level effects, it's, it's our version of a crystal ball. We can look at those effects to understand what future impacts on health might be. And that is a tremendous advantage that we have. This is no longer a completely new pathogen. There has been a lot of work done, and we actually understand quite a lot about the mechanisms of how COVID-19 affects health. And um, looking at those five different types of mechanism that you can see in that slide there from a very good paper, each one of those is concerning. So if we had just one of those five, any one of those five, we would be concerned about this infection. And uh, to have those five and actually some more um, emerging at the moment um, really underlines to us that we need to take this infection very seriously. The fourth point is, um, is one about impact in the whole population. So not just in, in for, for one child or one family, but looking at this whole generation now, we're broadening out the scope. Uh, effects become frequent when every child gets the infection. So even something that's a relatively low percentage risk, when every it's happening to every child, that means 
a lot of children are going to be experiencing that particular outcome. And COVID-19 is um, unique in the uh, pathogens that um, the infections that children are getting in that it's got this ongoing reinfection. And I just want to emphasize that point, really, we don't have anything else at the moment that does that, that causes two to three infections a year. And um, even, even influenza, even flu, an adult would expect to get flu maybe twice in a decade, proper flu. And likewise, children might have seem to have a lot of coughs and colds, but it's not the same infection each time. It would be a different virus usually. So this is really unusual, and um, that means that we need to pay attention to this virus. So you can see how it multiplies out. Most children are going to get COVID because it's so infectious. So unless we stop it, of course. Um, they might not just get one infection, but multiple infections going forward in, in the years to come. And a high percentage of those um, infections are causing longer-term effects, which might be might last just a short while, or they might last longer. When you put all that together, all those multiplies together, you get frequent health impacts. You get a big impact on that pandemic generation. And um, looking at what we know in Aotearoa, New Zealand, um, we don't even really know the full total of children who got COVID last year because they weren't really being tested and it wasn't really being counted very well. But in the Well Kiwis cohort, um, two thirds of the five to nine year olds in that cohort tested positive between February and September last year. That's huge. So until the beginning of 2022, very few New Zealand children had had COVID. By the end of 2022, most had. In terms of people are often asking um, what percentage of children will get long COVID, what percentage of children will um, experience particular outcomes. And that's a, actually a very hard question to answer. But I just want to point out a, a very hot of the press, very recent um, results from the, the clock study, which um, in that study, they found 12 to 16% of children with Omicron met the research definition of long COVID. So three and six months after infection, that's a lot. That's actually higher than some other studies. So what will the answer be for us here for, for Aotearoa for children um, who had who had <clears throat> excuse me who had Omicron last year. We we don't know, and um, my colleagues and I have a study going at the moment to look at that. And um, but we do expect that it will be a lot of children. So just to recap, um, we need to be proactive, not reactive in assessing risk. We mustn't wait for things to happen. We need to take a precautionary approach. We need to listen to the lived experience of children and their families. Absolutely self-evident. When a virus shows you what it can do, believe it. And what we are seeing coming through is showing us that this is a serious infection. We must take it seriously. Effects become frequent when every child gets infection. So that this is thinking up at the population level now. We have a whole pandemic generation being exposed to this new infection and we need to think about what we can do to protect them. So that's a, a lot of information about why we should be concerned. I also want to emphasize to you that we need to be hopeful and optimistic. We have so much going for us. 
because of the, the elimination strategy, our pandemic started late. So most children in Aotearoa have had one or two infections. In overseas countries, they're looking at sometimes five, six, seven, eight infections. We are still early in our pandemic, our own pandemic. We have time to act. We also have far more resources than in previous pandemics. Um, this is really the first time that we've been able to do these very detailed risk assessments and understanding impacts before they happen. That's a huge advantage. And we also have better risk management tools. We have lots of tools for prevention and increasingly more for treatment. So we have that advantage too. So what we need to do in terms of building on these advantages that we have is we need to move out of crisis mode now. We need to accept that it's here and we need to accept that there is a lot that we can do. And the first thing is clean the air. That's um, been discussed in other sessions, so I, um, I won't um, labour that point, but this is such a critical thing because it gives us protection against COVID, against RSV, against flu, the other viruses the children get, and the pandemics to come. This is a great, great place to start. We need to ensure that schools and early childhood centres are safe for everybody to access. This is about protecting learning as well as health. And above all, we need to build systems to protect people. This is not about using people to protect systems, and sometimes children have been used in that way. My colleague, Carmen Timupalata, has put this in a beautiful way that we need to be placing a Korowai cloak of protection around our school environments and communities. We are saying that school should be one of the safest places a child can be, and that is an absolutely attainable goal. Earlier this year in March, we published an editorial, and um, I'm not going to talk through the findings. It's, it's all there, and there's a lot of detail in there about making school one of the safest places a child can be. And we identified seven goals, and again, that's all in the paper. There's one key point I want to make here, which is that the seven goals are designed to work together. So that it's not a kind of menu where you can pick one, two, or three things. The, the goals are designed to work together. We're, we're designing a system where every element has a part to play in supporting the other elements. And that needs really good strategic thinking to make that happen. So last slide you'll be here. Um, how are we going to protect the pandemic generation? What do we know? Well, we know now that we need to prevent infection and reinfection, and we know how to do that. We need to build systems that protect people. So we need to move away from messages like um, enforcing attendance during a pandemic because being in school um, has become important. We need to move away from that. It is important that children are in school, but school must be safe. So we must always center children and staff, families in what we do everything we do. We are building systems to protect people, and that is the heart of public health. Finally, we're still early in our pandemic. We can significantly, I beg your pardon, we can significantly limit its impact in the years to come, but we do need to start now. And thank you very much. That's it from me. I'm going to stop sharing. We'll move back to the main room. Thank you so much, Dr. Kvalsvig.
Um, we'll move right along to Dr. Elspeth Frascatore. Uh, Elspeth Frascatore is an emergency medicine physician working in Tamaki Makoro after initially graduating from Glasgow University in the United Kingdom. She has a special interest in Manaki Mana, working to improve e equity and outcomes for Maori patients requiring emergency department care. She's the founding member of Doctors Stand Up for Vaccination, a grassroots initiative founded in 2021 to create support for the vaccination effort against COVID-19. Dr. Frascatore, thank you so much for coming tonight. Kia ora, kia ora all. Um, please, oh, I'm just getting to my screen share. We can have that awkward moment where we all wait for me to successfully share my screen. Please shout loudly if my slides are not moving for you. Uh, my name is Dr. Frascatore. I'm one of the ED, uh, ED doctor working in Auckland, as, as um, we've already said, um, and um, obviously worked in Auckland during the, the um, COVID outbreak. Um, I've got a number of perspectives that come from my background um, in ED, um, working in the advocacy with regards to the vaccination campaign, and also as, as a person who has suffered long COVID. So we will cover a few of these things. Um, one thing that can be said with absolute certainty is that Aotearoa um, was comparatively very good in a crisis. And from the point of view of um, the COVID outbreak in 2021 to 2022, um, and during the Delta outbreak, we did extremely well comparative to other countries um, with, our, with our lockdowns and making sure that we did not suffer the massive wave of the Delta outbreak like other countries did. Um, so, you know, we, we need to remember that and we certainly need to take that, that away. However, um, Aotearoa, along with pretty much every other country in the world, has proven itself to not be particularly good when the initial crisis is over. So on the left here, we have the number of COVID tests that have been done. Um, and you can see that in um, after kind of January and early 2022, those test numbers just drastically dropped off. Um, not surprisingly, the COVID numbers drastically dropped off around about the same time, but then you're not going to know that COVID's there if you're not testing for it. Um, so where it can certainly be said that those dangerous initial strains um, of Delta COVID um, on are not so much around. It doesn't mean that another strain similar to that will not appear in the future, but they're not so much around. Um, COVID very much still is around. And um, I personally take a, a bit of a personal affront when I hear people say that COVID is over because it 100% isn't. The other graph on the right talks about vaccinations. Um, and we can see that the first and second doses of the, of the COVID vaccination were absolutely awesome. Um, and rightly so, because the government pushed um, for them strongly and there was large campaigns around them. Uh, but then as you get towards the um, first booster, the second booster and, and the more recent boosters, you can see those numbers dropping off. Obviously less people are eligible for the current boosters, but even when you take eligibility into, into account, the um, uptake of the boosters has significantly dropped off. So it's fair to say that probably the fear of COVID is decreasing. Um, and that we're probably not doing as well as we could now that the, in inverted commas, crisis is over. 
from the point of view of the emergency department's uh, experience of COVID, if you look across to other parts of the world and you see the experiences of America, the experiences of, of Italy um, in those early stages, the experiences were dreadful. There was um, horrible images of, of mortuaries and and people having to deliver care in horrible circumstances. And that was not the case for Ultramar. Because we were so good in that initial crisis, um, you could almost say that the department was at times quiet, comparative to normal, even though you would never say the word quiet on the floors of an emergency department, because somebody would probably slap you because we're not allowed to say that. It's a bad omen. Um, but thereafter those those kind of quiet days very readily ramped back up to our normal business as usual which i'm sure as you can tell from uh media representation or people's personal experiences of emergency departments is that we are very very rarely quiet and, and very often extremely busy and that is the case now you'll have heard um bandied around the phrase um uh um, immune weakness or immune holiday or immunity debt. Um, and that term is used uh, incorrectly sometimes. Um, apart from having chemotherapy or cancer, there is really no such thing as a strong or weak immune system. The immune system just is. The immune system just exists. And if it sees a virus, it will fight it, and then develop some form of immunity to it. So just to let people understand what that phrase means, it doesn't mean that people have weak immune systems because of the lockdowns. It just means that we are seeing viruses for the first time because we were in lockdown for a while. But what I think we need to, as a, as a country, shift from is thinking about acute COVID. But that doesn't mean it's not significant and significant in the long term. I personally have had long COVID twice. My I had COVID for I had long COVID for about three months after my first bout and about four months after my second bout. Now, when you put into theory three or four months, it doesn't sound like a lot. But if you catch COVID twice in a year, that's half of the year for you is gone. COVID is, long COVID is becoming better understood. And as a person who's had it, I've obviously done a fair amount of reading on it, which a lot of you find a lot of doctors don't actually have that knowledge. It's multifactorial, as Amanda pointed towards. The COVID is known to, rather than have COVID and then have it go away, instead, the COVID is known to stay on in people's organs. So it may stay on in the brain or may stay on in other organs. Now that's not new. Um, Chickenpox stays on in people's organs and can come back as shingles many years later. So that is not a brand new thing or a surprising thing for viruses to do. But the thing is with COVID, for a certain number of people, it can cause a kind of autoimmune response whereby your immune response to the COVID also can damage your own cells. And what we do know is that it can damage your blood vessel lining. And obviously blood vessels go all over your body to supply all of your organs. So damage to your blood vessel lining 
can be very concerning. It's also caused, known very well to cause what's called microclots, so extremely small clots. And all of that put together can result in damage to the organs that COVID is affecting. One of the more recent pieces of research seems to suggest that the damage is actually something called a reperfusion injury, whereby if you're having not a great perfusion of, of an organ and then blood flows back into it, then that can actually be where the damage is caused. So all of this, because it's affecting multiple different parts of people's bodies, it can manifest itself differently. For me, it manifested as extreme fatigue, which is not new. We've all heard that before. But it also manifested as the brain fog, which we've all heard of before. Now, I don't like the phrase brain fog. It, it's very um, almost dis dismissive. I like to think of it more as a viral concussion because it has a lot of crossover with concussion. And in that, for me personally, I had a lot of different symptoms. And these are a lot of different symptoms. As I, as I describe these, try to then translate them into children or learners' environment. So for me, I had a lot of problems with auditory processing. So an inability to have, have multiple conversations going on, on in a room and being able to localize out the specific conversation. I had difficulty with kind of executive level functioning. So complex decision-making or multi-step decision-making. Um, I had difficulty with amnesia and inability to, to lay down short-term memory. I had word-finding difficulties. So rather than having conversations or the words that you think of just automatically come out of your, out of your mouth without having to think, instead for me, it was that you had to hear a conversation, decide what you're going to say after processing it, and then say it. So every part of the conversation became deliberate, and there was no automaticity to it. So for me, as a doctor, and I want to highlight that my work was incredible, they allowed me to, to return to work in such a way that there was never any risk to myself or any patients. But what was, what was it that work had to do to allow me to do that? At first, I could only do four-hour shifts and step up with that. At first, I couldn't supervise other doctors. I couldn't work in resource situations. Um, I couldn't be in charge on the floor. And all over time, I was able to do this. But what's the impact on the rest of the workforce? So you're then having to have other doctors being able to fill in those gaps if you then extrapolate that out to other professions, such as aviation, nursing, teaching, anywhere where you're having multiple inputs from multiple directions, then you're going to have a lot of areas that as long COVID affects more and more people that are impacted upon from a workforce point of view. Then extrapolate that to the child or to the learner. If you're getting a lot, an episode of long COVID, even if it's only for two to three months in your formative years where you're laying down pathways, where you're trying to learn, where you're developing behaviors, what would be the impact of that upon a child? And how would they even recognize what was happening to them and be able to express that? And I think that that is what we're not talking about as a country. We're not talking about 
workforce implications if you're having multiple teachers, university lecturers, engineers, if you're having a, a proportion of your workforce that is impacted by long COVID. And what's the impact upon our children? We know that children get long COVID. What are the psychological, physiological, physical implications of that? I think that what there are no experts in long COVID in Aotearoa. There are hardly any experts in the world, to be honest. And we need to start listening to people who've experienced it and who can explain what the implications are. So thank you very much for listening to me. <laughs> and um, I will stop my sharing. Thank you, Dr. Frascatore. All right, we have our last um, panelist before Q&A. Um, so that's Connor Brown. Connor Brown okay. is a biorisk consultant. Oh, sorry, Connor. That's okay. <laughs> I was just going to introduce you. He advises commercial organizations on the current and future risks posed by infectious pathogens, including but not limited to COVID-19. Thank you, Connor. Thank you for having me, and thank you for those two wonderful presentations before. So I would um, I would just uh, reiterate what Chris has just said. I do not come from the, the medical point of view on this particular topic. I come from a much more business, economic-oriented um, oriented position. I talk a lot about risk to clients. Uh, this is the first time that I've, I've dealt with an educational setting, but but some of the, uh, the, the, the broader messages I think I'm going to give are, um, are just as applicable, to be honest. Um, the first thing I'd like to say is that that I'm speaking to you from from Belfast, Northern Ireland. So we've actually been in our kind of um, the, the stage of the of the pandemic, the ongoing pandemic, for for longer than you have. So we we've seen a lot of these impacts that have been talked about by the 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 previous two presenters kind of play out in in real time. So I can assure you that 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 a lot of what is being said. If you go forward a year or a year and a half, you're going to see these things start to manifest themselves in society. Um, the, the first point I would make is, is, and again, drawing from a much uh, from a broader perspective, looking at this from a, a sort of a, a, a sort of a more more top down approach, that there is often a a misconception in society and certainly in politics that we can take the ideas of public health and in this particular case the ideas of of looking after our children and looking after our children in education and somehow placing that in opposition with the idea of education so on one hand we have public health and on the other hand we have we have education and also we see this as well with the idea that we have public health on one side and the economy on the other and a lot of the political discourse, a lot of the educational discourse um, that have been that has been going on in this country and the UK, is that somehow that these two ideas are in conflict with one another. That somehow the ideas of public health are in conflict with the ideas of education, or the ideas, for that matter, of public health are in conflict with the ideas of the economy. Now, one thing that I often try to get across to clients is that this is a completely and utterly false dichotomy. That you you cannot sort of you you do not place the idea of children being in school, children receiving a good education, somehow in in conflict with the ideas of public health. Um, and just to to break that down very basically, and as as has been talked about by by previous presenters, um, one of the one of the things that that I think has been lost, and especially in in a lot of the discourse, sadly, in the United Kingdom. Is that we are we are entering a position with education we are, where we are we are basically forgetting as a society here 
that for children to learn well, for teachers to teach well, their health must be paramount. And, and as one of the, the previous panelists talked about, their safety must be paramount. So in other words, to, to create a, a productive, safe, and efficient learning environment, you, you want to really make sure that, that the staff in the school, the teachers, everyone who works there, and all of the students, all of the children, are all as healthy as they can possibly be. Um, and, and I know we've been talking about that, that exact topic thus far, but it's something that I suppose this is a warning from further down the line, because this is the way that politics has shifted in the United Kingdom to a culture of presenteeism above all costs. The idea that children just have to be in school, and we have very, very few mitigations here. So the thing I would say is that 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 one of the previous panelists alluded to this as well, that, that you're in a very good, good position because you're in a position to be able to address this risk right now and actually move forward. So the first thing I would say, just just talking about about children in school, is that there there is no uh, contradiction between having having a safe environment for people to learn and and the, the the ability for people to learn. Basically, there is no conflict between education and public health, and unfortunately, that that has very much um, seeped into the discourse in the United Kingdom, where somehow these two things are set are set apart. They are set as if they are in conflict with one another. Um, the other thing I would say is to remember, um, and, and I would I would also reiterate this with the economy as well, because you will hear a lot of arguments like this as well that somehow um, elements elements of the economy are somehow in in contradiction or 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 in conflict with um, with the dictates of public health. This is absolutely not the case. Health is paramount for all of these things, and and this sounds very much like stating the obvious, but unfortunately. I've had to state the obvious for about the past year and a half, um, and I just want to, to make this very clear. So if you want to have um, a good learning environment for children, if you want to have a safe learning environment for children, and you want to have an, an environment where children learn as best as they possibly can, you want to have an environment that is safe, and you want to encourage the health of students, staff, and, and, and every other learner. Now, as was previously mentioned, we, we are seeing these very concerning studies regarding long COVID in children. And as, uh, as the previous panelist um, pointed out very clearly, one of one of the things that we've seen, and we, you know, we see this not only in children, but in, in, in adults as well, the, the executive dysfunction that can be caused by long COVID is a significant impediment to learning. It's a significant impediment to the, to the, uh, the, the uh, whenever anyone is doing a skilled task you will see that there are all kinds of problems that start to flag up as a result of that. Um, and I think one of the one of the basic points, just just start trying to stay fixed on education for the moment, is that if you have children who are suffering from long COVID, and we know that children unfortunately are, are quite prone to to getting long COVID after each infection, you create a situation where where a child is is less able to learn anywhere near as effectively as the child could learn if, if the child did not have long COVID because of these neurocognitive effects that we tend to get, this brain fog. And, and by the way, I agree, I, I don't like that expression either. I don't like the expression brain fog. I think it tends to minimize the problem a little bit. Um, so there, there's a lot of reasons where, why, why keeping our schools safe, keeping educational facilities safe in terms of, and when I say safe, what I mean is minimizing the amount of transmission that occurs in those schools. That is a is not only a very good idea, 
but it is in no way it, it, it doesn't conflict in any way with the idea of having a good um, education for your children. Quite the opposite. It is something that is a necessity for having a good education for your children. And the reason that I, I suppose I keep pushing this point is that I'm aware that, as I said, you're earlier on in, in your pandemic than we are. And I've seen very clearly here how, how the, the discourse has moved forward into almost placing these things in opposition. So I think that's probably the, the first thing to remember is that um, having, having, safe, um, having, having safe environments for children to learn is essential for children's education that there, there is no there is no conflict between the two that may sound like stating the obvious but as i said politics can move in in, in quite in quite a malignant ways with this particular idea um the second thing i would like to draw your attention to is is and this is one of the ways that i would probably describe it is never ever think about um the idea of COVID transmitting and it's stopping at the school gates what we know, and this is something that that we, we've learned the hard way um, over the past couple of years, is that schools and, and ed educational facilities in general are centers of transmission for the virus that then will then spread out into the community. So when you again, when you start taking this this slightly more broad picture, making schools safe is not just about the um, the, the the education of your children it's not just about that because the virus doesn't respect the, the 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 gates of the school the virus will go further into the community so and and, and you can get what are referred to as chains of transmission so in other words uh, a child and some of you may have experienced this already where a child comes home and infects people in in the household and then you get a kind of a cascade effect where maybe someone, an adult in the household, gets gets quite ill with COVID, maybe gets some long-term effects, and then isn't able to work for two or three months. So what you see is a wider spread that goes beyond not just um, the the education of children, but moves into having adverse effects on on the local economy because you've got people who can't work, people who are too unwell to work. Now all of all of this kind of it's a kind of a holistic approach. You can never really think about um, you can never really think about this virus purely based in one location. Um, so I suppose what I'm trying to get across is that keeping keeping schools safe is very very important in terms of the education of children and very, and obviously of course for keeping the, the the staff and the teachers safe. But it also serves a, a much more a, a, another more important function. Which is basically that schools themselves tend to drive community transmission in whatever community that they're based in. So, in other words, if you have high transmission in a school, if a lot of kids are getting COVID are, are getting COVID in the school, then what's going to happen is that's going to raise levels of COVID in the community, um, which can affect, as I said, can affect the local economy, can, and, and can also, sadly, um, these chains of transmission can eventually end up with a vulnerable person or someone who's immunocompromised, and then you start getting people getting really ill. So I think I think probably the the way to think about this quite holistically, and this is how I try to approach it from a business point of view, is there is never first of all there is as I to reiterate my first point there there is no conflict between uh, making schools safe. And the idea of having an education for your child, quite the opposite. It's making schools safe is a prerequisite for having a good education for a child. Second of all, there is no conflict between um, mitigation measures for COVID-19 and somehow these mitigation measures adversely affecting the economy. Quite the opposite. That's very, very short-term thinking. 
having good mitigation measures in place, reducing the transmission of the virus in the community is actually exceptionally good for the economy. It's exceptionally good for, for um, pretty much all aspects of business. And again, this is something that I, I, I constantly try to um, try to get across to, to my clients. Um, one of the things I would say, just, just picking up on something that, that the previous panelists said, the issues that 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 um that arise from from long covid um specifically these ideas of 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 a degree of cognitive dysfunction this brain fog that that has been alluded to we are starting to see um evidence that this is this is actually starting to have very it's quite significant real world impacts in countries that have had um essentially on on control transmission of covid for for a couple of years like the uk like the united states uh, what we see, for example, is an, a, a, quite a significant increase in road traffic accidents. So even using that as an example, um, and this is where we, we again think about the idea of um, the, the virus itself and transmission of the virus moving beyond the gates of the school. You can imagine, for example, if a, uh, someone who's a bus driver who has got long COVID and is suffering from executive or cognitive dysfunction, then that person will be less able to to drive a bus and to 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 take the the due care and attention that that one would expect in that particular profession. We have seen it in the United States. Uh, this effect kind of rearing its head, I think, in air traffic controllers. The the Federal Aviation Authority in the United States had to have its one of its very first emergency meetings earlier in this year because air traffic controllers, there was there were so many near misses um, that the FAA had to had to call a meeting. So this 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 particular type of of um long-term effect, this cognitive dysfunction, whether it lasts a month, whether it lasts two months, whether it lasts three months, perhaps even longer. It is it's pernicious in in lots of different ways in society. Basically, any any profession that involves skilled work and any profession that involves um, uh, having to think very quickly, having to think and act very quickly, is starting to be affected by people who unfortunately are having to turn up for work with this this brain fog. So, I think to kind of to kind of sum up what I'm saying from this kind of larger sort of top down approach. First of all, again, no conflict between public health and education. The two are exactly the same. You, you cannot have good education for your children without healthy children and healthy staff in the school. Um, second of all, never ever think that, that the, what happens in a school stops at the school gates, that the, the transmission can occur. Schools are, are, are hotbeds of transmission in the entire community. And if you can if you can lower the rates of transmission in a school, you will you will lower the rates of transmission in general throughout your entire community, which is good from a business point of view in the sense that less people get ill. And it's also good simply from the point of view of less people will get sick, because, as I said, a chain of transmission can easily happen where a kid gets sick that the, the the virus is brought back to someone at home someone someone is vulnerable and that vulnerable person or immunocompromised person ends up in hospital so there really is no downside to 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 mitigating the the transmission of virus in school or or or, or learning environments and i would i would i would i suppose i would end with a note of caution because there's a degree of it almost feels like time travel here because I'm I'm in a country where there has been little to no mitigations done for a very 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 long time in in terms of the duration of the pandemic, and we are seeing the effects that the previous two panelists have talked about all too clearly. 
we are seeing children that are sick a lot of the time. We are seeing um, teachers who are having difficulty teaching because they've got brain fog. We are seeing a general reduction in quality of education because no mitigations have been put in place. And, and I realize from, from what has been talked about before that you've had previous webinars um, about mitigations in schools. One of the things that I would just emphasize is that cleaning the air is so, so, so important. It's a very easy intervention. It's a low cost intervention. And it's something that I think really we need to, especially in New Zealand, because you have you now have the time to do that. You have the time to act and get these things in place that I think you really, really should consider um, doing that in, 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 in absolutely every school you have. Um, the, the thing to remember, and I'm, I'm just aware of time here, but the, the other thing to remember about risk is that never, ever forget that no mitigation strategy is 100% effective. So in other words, even if you if you kit out an entire school with air cleaning, you, you will still get cases of the virus. That's going to happen. So never think about, about risk in, uh, in binary terms. Something works or it doesn't. What you tend to find with this particular virus is you can reduce the transmission a lot. And one of the sayings in, in, in public health is that you never you never really see you never really see what, what happens whenever something works, because what you're seeing is you might see two and two or three infections in the school and think, oh, these systems aren't working. But of course, what I would say to you is that if these systems are in place, you might be seeing 15, 16, 17 infections. So it's always about thinking about risk in terms of gradient in that you can you can reduce it and you can use different layers to reduce it. But that is a key, key, key thing. If you can reduce transmission in schools, you can create a better environment for teachers, for education, and for your communities in general. And I think that's probably a good place to leave it. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, Connor. Um, so we've got a few questions coming in, um, and I, I know our panelists have been at work answering some of them already. Um, and if they continue to come in at the rate that they have been, then we'll have quite a few. We might not get through all of them, um, but we will take note of them and we'll see how if we can get you some answers somehow, uh, maybe later in the evening or something like that, if we're um, if we're unable to get through all of them tonight. Um, I did want to take host's prerogative and kick off with a question. Um, and that question, I just wanted to hark back to the statistics that Amanda shared, which just absolutely blow my mind, um, which is, if I'm reading it right, um, at the bottom of one of the slides, it said that every infection carries a risk of between one in six and one in eight, it seemed, children getting long COVID. It was somewhere around like 12, 16%, if I remember right. And that just seems so high um, because, you know, almost everyone I know has had COVID and yet I don't feel like I know one in eight kids that have long COVID. And so I was wondering if perhaps Amanda or Connor, you could talk to like, why do we, I'm sure I'm not the only one who experiences this feeling of like, we feel like it's a different reality like this, like our sense of this is off. We feel like we're overreacting when we see these statistics and when we, we don't see them outside. Uh, Amanda, you put up your hand. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yes, thank you. This has been so conflicted trying to nail down an exact percentage and um, different studies will give you different answers. And this study I think is quite interesting because the um, some of the authors of that study have in the past um, been quite dismissive of long COVID and now they're coming out saying they found um, a high percentage in their in their cohort that they were studying. You might find another group of children that 
have a lower percentage of um, using the same definition, but they might have a lower percentage. I think it is a little bit of a deflection strategy sometimes when people say, well, we just don't enough, don't know enough, and the studies um, contradict one another as an excuse to do nothing. And I think we need to be really careful about that. Um, the fact that we have this lived experience coming through and, and, and what Connor is describing now is proper um, population level effects starting to come through into daily life. And we, we know enough to know that we should, um, we should be taking action. We shouldn't wait for it, for it to coalesce around a, a specific number. And that, that was um, just the first point and sorry there was another one I was going to um I was going to say that that study that I quoted is quite small so the the variation is quite wide so we need to be a little bit cautious but it was very robust and was very carefully done so um so I think we should take note of that study. Could I just add something to that if you don't mind? Um the the one thing I, I would add as well is that Amanda you mentioned the importance of lived experience. Um, and this is something that I have I have found quite often in my work is that people will whenever you um whenever you get a chance to actually talk to parents about their children, you will often find that that after talking to them a little while, they will say something isn't quite right with with my child. So I I don't think that I think sometimes that goes goes away to explaining why people think oh well th th this seems like a very very high number or a very high percentage but it's because often long COVID can be quite hidden it can be something that that isn't particularly obvious to to outside people but whenever you actually know the child or you know the family often you will hear things like my 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 son hasn't been quite right since the second infection or something like that so it i think it's probably it's probably quite hidden in some cases and just to add one final thing is that i have to tell you that gas the gaslighting is real in this in this realm the um amount of times that i've spoken about what i've experienced um and know it to be real, then you can see in other people's eyes the disbelief and the gaslighting and the suggestion of a concrete pill um, and the suggestion that perhaps it's just menopause. So I think that we need to be be real with the fact that there's a lot of, of long COVID that's happening under the surfaces um, that no one's talking about as well. Thank you, everyone. All right, I'm going to do my best to try and choose some questions that um, um, everyone can that people on the panel can speak to, um, and that will be um, will be able to get um, worthwhile answers here tonight. Um, maybe if I could start with uh, this question: um, Are there any insights into Australia's long COVID clinics and outcomes versus New Zealand's um, uh, lack of clinics, and how long COVID is being handled by GPs or specialists? Um, Dr. Frascatore, I saw you nod, <laughs> so maybe you could Gosh. jump in. <laughs> The problem is, I don't think anyone is qualified to answer that question. There are there are long COVID um, clinics in other countries. There's also a hell of a lot of long COVID grifters out there. There's a lot of of vitamin infusions, um, saline infusions. Um, if you throw enough things at somebody, then they might work. But in the end, is it just time that is the healing factor? Um, so there are there are genuine ways that long COVID clinics can help. Um, which would need to be affiliated strongly with existing medical services and and hospitals, um, and it is a it is a minefield for 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 the grifters. 
by grifters, sorry, I just to translate that, I mean I mean people who are offering a fix that is often expensive and not evidence-based. Thank you. Um, sorry, I wasn't sure if the others wanted to add. I, I would add one, one, one point to that, Chris. Um, one of the, the most disturbing things that we saw in Ireland, um, I'm talking about the Republic of Ireland, not the UK, was the, the gradual defunding of long COVID clinics. So again, this is this kind of um, this kind of looking forward in terms of we've 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 been dealing with this um, uh, for for longer than you guys have, and it's again it's kind of like a warning of what can happen. That there has been a and, and again this harkens back to something um, that was just said earlier. There there is there is some elements where the gaslighting is actually so strong that it's become institutionalized, and that you actually see sadly you see government incentives. To almost um, push long COVID to the sidelines. Now, now, obviously, anybody who who has experience with um, with ableism and things like that will recognise where this is coming from. But but it's it's terrifying to see it on a governmental level uh, in, in the health service where these things are actually trying to be being being. They're, they're, it's not just that they're being treated at a minimal level. It's almost it almost feels sometimes like they're being pushed away. And that's something that I, I would just caution you. Um, I would caution you because it it is a it is a terrifying thing to watch. So whenever uh, uh, the previous panelist said the gaslighting is strong, I, I assure you she is absolutely correct. It is it is very very strong indeed. Yeah, Amanda, did you want to add something? Just to add a very quick comment that um, you'll hear pediatricians say, "Well, I never see any cases of long." COVID. And what they're really telling you is, um, firstly, they're telling you about how the health system works because um, people have to jump through so many hoops to get to see a specialist um, that often they don't. So they, they don't get believed at the first hoop, they will never get to see the paediatrician. And uh, the, the second point is, um, sadly, if somebody's telling you that they know nobody with long COVID, what they're probably telling you is that they're not really a safe person to disclose that experience too and um and so you find this um some people know about lots of long covid kids and some people don't know about any and um and that there are reasons for that sort of structural reasons for that if you like thank you um there's been a couple of questions in the chat um about getting people to um to listen i guess is, is the common theme there um but well, we might start with this one because a couple of them have been directed to you, Connor. Um, so, for example, um, one that's just asked, have you had the, the businesses you talked to responded to your advice and recommendations and are they taking action? And then the next question below that also, like, these arguments have been lost in the UK. How can we win them in New Zealand? Yeah, so, so first of all... Um... A lot of businesses do actually listen to my advice and, and put certain things into operation. Um, that That's... I mean, I work with companies all over the world, and and some will take the advice and some will not. They 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 hire me for the advice, whether they actually put it into action is very much their decision or not. Um, certainly, from the very beginning of the pandemic, when I was when I was working in a in a more of a business continuity space, and this was whenever things were were very bad. This was before vaccines. Um, lots of companies were putting business continuity plans into place. Um, what has happened, unfortunately, and again, this is something that that harkens back to to what other panelists have talked about, is that because there is this feeling that we are no longer in a pandemic, in fact, a, a lot of companies, some some things have kind of slipped because they feel like there, there's no need for any any necessity for any of this. But but the other thing I would say is that um, 
uh, companies certainly have instituted things like air cleaning and things like that. That that is happening. Um, and and I think I, I think I, I would I would add a note of optimism to that that there there is more of that happening. I think than people imagine. Um, you will often see you know I, you'll often see pictures of office buildings and suddenly there's lots of HEPA filters have kind of appeared. So you know there there is a kind of an underground movement. It's not huge. But but it is it is happening. Um, could you remind me of the second question, Chris? Just so I could. I was much along the same lines. It was like these arguments have been lost in the UK. How can we win them in New Zealand? Well, well, first of all, I I think they've been lost temporarily in the UK. I, I don't think they're they're going to be lost forever because um and I and, and I think the, these these two ideas um fit together because one of the ways I would say you win the argument in New Zealand is you look at the situation in the United Kingdom and you say, do you want to be like that? I mean, that that's that's very much the way I would put it. We have had, um, the United Kingdom has the, the highest number of people um, out of work due to disability um, since I think the, the previous 15 or 16 years, don't don't quote me exactly, but this is this is there. The government has tried to spin this in lots of different ways. But quite frankly, it, it's it's you know, very, very highly likely that a lot of it is due to the fact of long-term effects of COVID. So whenever you start seeing workforce, um, uh, significant workforce problems as a result of long-term effects of COVID, then governments eventually start, have to, they have to take, they have to take um, some kind of an approach to this. And I, and I think that, that is, that's happening in both the UK and the United States. Um, one, one thing that just, just to end on that point, there, there is a reason that throughout, um, throughout the entire of the pandemic, the best reporting in sort of in the UK and the US and other parts of the world, the best reporting on the pandemic has been in the financial press. And that often surprises people, but it's magazines like Forbes, Fortune, the Financial Times, because there is that recognition that if you let this thing continue to burn through society, you eventually leave this tail of disability that becomes unsustainable economically. And I think countries are, are gradually starting to come around to that. So I would say the way you win the battle in New Zealand is you look at what's happening in the United Kingdom and other parts of Europe and you say, we are not going to be like that because that will actually give your country an economic advantage. And that's the way I would frame it if I was talking to policymakers. Thank you. Um, did any, Amanda or um, Dr. Frascatore, oh, sorry, Dr. Kvalsvig, um, did you want to um, add anything to that? I would just say we're happy to learn anything we can from your experience you are the time travelers connor and <laughs> and so anything you can tell us we are trying a lot of things so it's we're not we're not sitting around and we have been aware from the very beginning that um, when we look at countries outside new zealand we're looking into our own future and uh, so we are aware of it but um looking being able to look ahead is very helpful because we can communicate that to policymakers, and we do um Another question here, um, why are vaccinations not being more encouraged for children? I think Amanda would be best to answer that. Fine. Um, I will answer and say that um, I am not aware of all the discussions that have been made in making vaccine decisions at a country level. I'm aware of some of them. Um, I, I do think there has been some underestimation of firstly um, the importance of the value of vaccination for children and perhaps secondly the willingness of parents to to take up vaccination so we we would never advocate for any kind of um, of mandated vaccination for young children um, but what we my colleagues and I are 
asking for is to for parents to have the choice. It's um, it's been very well looked at in, in, in the US and other places. Um, vaccine, these vaccines are very well studied. We know that outcomes for children are better when they've been vaccinated compared with when they have the, the um, infection and aren't vaccinated. We know that. It's very, very clear. So we want parents to, to have that option now. And, um, and it's unclear why New Zealand has been so slow to um, to make vaccines eligible. And that's particularly a problem for our Maori and Pacific populations. Um, these, these are the people who are most at risk and um, they need to have that option as an, as an equity, as a key equity option. Thank you. Um, we might move on to another question as we're running out of time. Um, we've got a question here about um, um, air filtration. Um, from, so um, this might be one for Dr. Kvalsvig and maybe Connor in your experience. Um, how many times should the air be changed per hour? Does the number of times change as a function of the number of people or children in a room? Okay, so so I can take that. I, I, would, I would stress I'm not an indoor air quality expert, but the the, the, the kind of the, the received wisdom for this so far. So first of all, ideally you want to change the air in a room eight times per hour. That's that's a, a good figure for having a very, very low rate of transmission. The CDC, um, quite surprisingly, actually, a few days ago released um released guidelines. They they put the the, the number of air changes per hour at five. Um and, and I think another professional organization yesterday set it at about six. Um we we tend to think that eight is ideal. Um so the idea is that you you basically change the entire volume of the air uh in a room eight times every hour. You ask the question, um, does it matter how many how many um, uh, people are in the room? The answer is not really, because what you're doing is you're changing the volume of air. Um, and the way to, to think about why this works is, and again, I'm sure you've covered this in previous webinars, is the way to think about the transmission of COVID is to think about the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus moving in the air as if it was invisible cigarette smoke. So that that's the way to think of transmission, right? You don't think about droplets. You don't think about these six feet arbitrary rules you think about it moving like like cigarette smoke if you can keep changing the air in the room you're pulling that smoke or that viral smoke out of out of the out of the atmosphere of the room and thus reducing transmission but i would say if you want optimal optimal um air change i would say it eight times per hour thank you amanda did you want to add I'll just say something quickly about um uh, our situation here with new zealand schools um School buildings are generally poor quality. In New Zealand, they're poorly ventilated. They often rely on, on um, opening windows so they don't have mechanical ventilation. So it can be hard to achieve those, um, those high standards, but I think it's really important that we have those standards and articulate them and say, this is the goal. This is what we're moving towards. We may not be able to do that today, but that is what we want for children on into the future, because this is a this is a permanent change in how we think about children's health and about air, the air that they breathe. We never want to go back to a situation where children are breathing dirty air full of viruses. We're never going to stop and say, right, it's, it's time to stop cleaning the air and everybody go back to breathing dirty air again. We're never going to do this. This is a pandemic leg legacy that we have. We want to make that an ongoing change. 
And um, if we think about it that way, we can think about ourselves as working towards that goal, even if we can't do that right away. If I could just add something the somebody asked previously on the questions of are hospitals safe and am I likely to catch COVID if I go to a hospital? And the fact is that probably one of the least likely places to catch COVID is, is ironically a hospital. One of the most likely places is a school. Um, I don't have the graph to hand, but we recently released a graph of professions and risk of, of COVID within professions. And right up at the top um, was teachers. And two third, one third of the way down the list was was doctors and nurses. So I think you know, we need the, the the risk right now is 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 it's not actually in the hospitals. It's it's in the schools. Childcare was number two, by the way. So that really tells you um, about the state of our air, where children are and where their carers are. Thank you. Um, that's actually a great segue for me to plug our last webinar where we did uh, show that graph in the webinar. Um, that's um, that's all the time we have for questions. There are still questions there. As I said, we'll take note of these questions and we'll see if we can get some answers to them. I know not all of them are quite within the realm of, um, within the scope of um, our panelists' work. Um, but I want to thank our panelists again. Thank you so much, Dr. Amanda Kowalsvig, Dr. Elspeth Frascatore, and Connor Brown. Um, I'm really grateful that you were able to uh, give your time tonight to share your expertise with everyone. Thank you so much. I'd like to com commend Dr. Mr. Connor Brown for having the only pronounceable name, and apologise <laughs> for my name and Randall <laughs> classic name. You've done well, very well. well. I mean, that's my cue to apologise for my pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> You've I done very well, Chris. <laughs> I answer to anything. I'm very used to it. It's a Norwegian name and English speakers can't say it. So there we are. Okay, so to wrap things up, uh, one of the questions that came up a number of times in the chat, uh, it comes up all the time over and over again at all our webinars, how do we get other people to act? And so just to wrap things up, I wanted to go over a few things that have you know been mentioned in past webinars that can be really helpful if you, you know, if you want to see action in your community. And the first thing, obviously, is a, a well-informed community, is, is a healthy community, is, is a community that's more likely to be taking action. So if there are people in your school community, your work community, wherever that you think would be receptive to this, would benefit from this webinar, then head over to events.covidaction.nz slash health, um, and you can share with them a copy of the webinar that you've just watched. Um, also, I would really recommend the webinar last week talking about solutions. So Dr. Andrew Dixon and Oliver Seiler came on and they talked about what they've been doing in their schools to make for better safety protocols around COVID and other airborne diseases in the classroom and in the school. Um, so head over to our website at events.covidaction.nz schools and you can check out that webinar in full. Uh, I'd really recommend it, lots of great advice from um, both of the speakers, both in terms of like the practical steps, talking about um, purifiers, CO2 monitors, masks, ventilation, um, but also talking about how they engaged their school on this, how they spoke to the principal and the teachers and how, how you can engage with other parents, hopefully in a constructive and collaborative way, but there was also some advice, you know, if you unfortunately have, um, have an encounter where you're not getting a lot of help from schools or you're not getting the safety that you need for your child, um, there were ways that they suggested to approach that 
with the school and the school leadership. So great webinar. That's um, available. The recording's up now at events.covidaction.nz slash schools. In a nutshell, um, if you really want the, the short notes on that, you know, it's the things that you always hear people talking about, right? Masks, high quality masks, N95 or P2 masks, air filters, mechanical ventilation. And just to recap, like some really key takeaways from that last webinar. Obviously with masks, they're, they're quick and cheap and they're very effective um, when worn properly um, at um, tamping down on transmission in a space. Obviously the downsides are that people are, you know, can be reluctant, um, but just keep in mind that even if you've got some people in a group or a community who aren't willing to wear them, 70%, 80% of people wearing masks in a group is still way better than 10% or 0%. Um, obviously, also support for masks can be difficult to sustain long-term. We've seen that, um, but they can be really useful for short periods of increased transmission or while you're transitioning to other measures um, to make spaces safer. So other options for, for keeping the air in a space clean is air filtration or mechanical ventilation. So air purifiers, they're, you know, they're cheaper than ventilation. You can deploy them into classrooms as these standalone units. They don't require individual action. So it just you know, requires someone to put it in and to turn it on, which can be a difficult part sometimes. Sometimes um, some people have found that after a while, again, there's a bit of a fatigue or forgetfulness. They may get turned off or they may get turned down due to noise. So it's important that they're sized right for the space. And obviously they take up space in classrooms. The gold standard is mechanical ventilation. Andrew, uh, Dr. Andrew Dixon in the last webinar spoke about um, that in his school, which happened to be a new school building. They're great because they're set and forget and they're centrally controlled. They're unobtrusive. They don't take up space in the classroom. But obviously there's a cost there because they require installation you know, into the building itself. And so it's the most expensive option there. Um, but what we certainly think that all buildings should be working towards now that we know the health benefits of clean air, not just from a COVID perspective, but for all respiratory diseases. And lastly, just going back to our very first webinar in case you missed it, I just wanna reiterate, you know, if, if you're wanting to take action in school, one of the, the exciting lessons on social change is that change can be made in social groups with as little as two or three people out of say a group of 12 advocating for change. The key there being advo actively advocating for change, right? If you've got two or three people who passively support your action, but they never speak up, that's not gonna help you. But if you've got two or three people working together, say, you know, if you're working on the board of trustees at your school, for example, if you can just get just two people to speak up in, in support, it can make a huge difference to the, to the dynamic of those discussions and how much luck you're, you're likely to have. The other really important thing to think about is what are your trusted pathways to decision makers in your community? with the urgency that we all feel around, you know, protecting our children's health, it can be really tempting to jump straight to talking to the board of trustees, talking to the principal, those other people with a lot of power to make a decision. But if that's your first interaction with them, or if they don't know you very well, or if, you know, unfortunately you might not even have a good relationship with them, then that might not be the most effective, effective pathway to them. And it's worth thinking about who else in the community has their ear and what is the, 
a trusted pathway you can find? Who's someone who trusts you and you can talk to honestly about the concerns and the things that you've learned who would then be able to pass them on in a more trusted or authoritative way to the decision makers? Um, and lastly, you know, have a think about the other allies in your in your community, whether it's teachers, heads of departments, other parents, um, students who have vulnerable family members, alumni of the school, local charities, sports uh, groups, uh, school clubs, union representatives. Um, all these people may not have the exact same reason as you for wanting clean air or wanting protections, but think about people who might for some reason be on the same page as you or have something in common that means you could work on this together. And so that's it for tonight. Thank you once again so much for joining us. I'm really grateful to our three speakers and all the speakers that have, have come on to our webinars. Really grateful to the community that has come together to help um, organize these, to spread the word. Um, it really, it, This has really been spreading through the word of mouth and people sharing, and of course, people bringing along friends. Uh, I harp on about this every time. Um, but if everyone just reaches out to a couple of friends, that's how you build a movement and that's how you build change. Um, so lastly, you know, if if you're not already, please get on our web on our um, on our website and sign up for our newsletter for Aotearoa COVID Action. So if you head over to covidaction.nz, sign up to our mailing list, find out what's coming up next, and um, let us know how we can help you to make the community a little bit safer, hopefully a lot safer if we can get some clean air in schools. Thanks so much for joining us. If artifices are denied, live in a pointless life, but learning all your lessons, fucking politics, there's no distinction, the words are now, it's paid with good intentions, and I'll admit that I'm at a loss for what to say, when they quote this as a cost, we ought to Live amongst the people every day